Hello, welcome to Overburden, the podcast for postal workers. I'm Kevin Hitchens. And I'm Brandy Hughes. Today we're going to talk about the postal strike of 1965. This was our first really big win, I think. There's another postal strike in 24 that was earlier, but right. yeah, we basically they brought in a bunch of scabs and broke that one. So this is our first really big win, and this is where CUPW started, really. Uh, yeah, that's why it's significant, because prior to that, we were the Canadian Postal Employees Association. And the, there was the Letter Carriers Union and the Union of Postal Clerks. I think so. But yeah, they anyway, they merged after this, and uh, a whole lot of changes started happening. This, a lot of what we have today is because of this strike and what's come from it. Um, so when you mentioned the 1924 strike, uh, what happened then is they brought in scabs, and in 1965, a bunch of those scabs were still working at the post office, and most of them as management. So um, the the workforce was kind of like, oh, well, this is what happens when we strike, and we kind of get shafted, and then the people who come in to replace us get all the uh, higher-paying jobs. Yeah, and that's why there's there was a 41-year gap between major strike or major job action at that time. The other thing it was, uh, it was illegal. Well, it wasn't necessarily <laughs> illegal. There was nothing saying you could or couldn't. The government framed it as illegal, right? Uh, and you'll notice when we talk about this, there's a lot of um, tactics that the corporation still uses today, putting out messaging that isn't accurate and things like that. Oh yeah. So that's something that happens. But uh, there was a lot of problems in the post office then, as there are now. Um, one of the main things is they were only making. What was it? $4,380 a year, which was less than you would be making if you were on what they called welfare at the time. Right. So welfare checks that you were delivering were more than your paychecks. By the time the strike happened, people were putting in 12-hour days, and there was no such thing as overtime. There was no overtime. Yeah, it was you work until the work's done. And, so, and they essentially hadn't really had any significant raises since like, since World War II ended. They'd... Between 57 and 65 and so there was two small, I don't know how small, but two small pay increases. There was two that were promised but canceled. Right. And twice they just flat out froze raises and weren't even offering anything. Also, in the previous 10 years, they had doubled the number of points of calls we were delivering to. And the volume had doubled as well. Without a increase in, uh, in uh, postage at the time either. So rather than raising cost of postage, all they did was keep our wages low. You artificially subsidize the mail. Right. right? So, so we were essentially subsidizing the low cost of stamps. Yeah, and business mail mostly. Yeah. And it, like the job was a lot different then. Like there, there wasn't health and safety wasn't really a thing. No. <laughs> um, and uh, like there, they, it was actually I think it was maybe more skilled labor than what we do today because they had to know how they had to like manually sort everything and they had to know where it was going to go. Yeah, 4,000 routes by memory, some of them are sorting. Right. you got to remember, too, when they doubled the, the volume and the points of calls, there was zero increase in staff. This wasn't like the post office was expanding rapidly. This was your workload expanded rapidly, and that's it. Right. And then uh, they had started bringing in uh, part-time workers because uh, most of them were female, and uh, they got paid less, even less, than what the regular workers were making. Quite a bit less, so they were massively expanding the part-time workforce. And then right before the strike happened, they also cut their wages <laughs> even further. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty sad when you're, you know, when the full-time people are making less than welfare and the part-time people are making even less than that, 
and then they got the wages. Right. Well, and, and, you know, they were not, it wasn't like it is today. They were not, they were in a very precarious position, those part-timers, because um, the attitude was just, we can just hire more. If you, if you leave because we mistreated you or because we're not paying you enough, there's always more. Well, and they could fire you anytime they wanted. There was no union. No union. Labor laws, labor laws were weaker. So yeah, if they wanted to fire you, they just fired you on the spot. And my understanding is that at the time, like the union, the people who were um, the leaders of the union were kind of, it was used as a way to get into management. It wasn't a way to fight management. It was a way to, to climb the corporate ladder. Well, the union had no power at all. There was no, uh, there was no grievance procedure even. Nope. There was no strike laws, like we said. So really, all you could do is go to management, ask for things, and hope. Beg. Yeah, yeah. and when all you're doing is begging. They say no. You can't be that confrontational. <laughs> like, the only thing you can do in their defense is to try and play nice, but you don't really have any recourse. So right. some of them, I think, probably tried, and some of them were just there as a stepping stone. So uh, that's one of the biggest things about this strike, is they weren't just striking against the government and the corporation. They were striking against their own leadership in the letter right. carriers union and the clerks association. Okay, so the, the strike started in July of 1965 with the postal workers in Montreal uh, going out on what was called a wildcat strike. But um, it was Vancouver next? They China? actually coordinated. They went out at the exact same time. Oh, right. I think yeah. it was 6 in the morning in Montreal and 2 in the morning in Vancouver. 5 in the morning in Montreal, it says here. Yeah. yeah. And they weren't really sure of the leadership at the time whether the floor would follow them out or not. But I guess it was very quick and very unanimous and very loud and a good party atmosphere. And everyone just, it's time, get off the floor and, and go. go on. Yep. Yeah. But some of the some of the um, higher union leadership didn't even support the strike. Well, some of the leadership actually suggested we be jailed for, for what they called illegal strike action. And of course it wasn't again. There's no <laughs> well, law there that no says law you can't walk way. up your job. Yeah. Right. So... And I suppose they could have, but when you're making, you know, less than welfare, what have you got to lose? And you're working in pretty crappy conditions, especially the women who were just yeah. blatantly uh, abused if, you know, if you didn't let them fondle you or, or whatnot. Yeah, sexual harassment was kind of part of the job. It was just accepted, yeah. And you either <laughs> took it or you left. Or you quit. Or you were fired, either one, right? Yeah. And if you did take it, then you could get, I don't know how it worked, but they had a credit system that you get tokens for how many, for uh, how many flats you sorted. Mail you yeah. Yeah. yeah, and if you let the supervisors get away with stuff, then you got extra tokens for work you didn't do. Right. So I think that was part of the work measurement system too because the other thing they did was say, well, you have to sort so fast to, uh, to make standards or whatever. If you didn't make the standards, you can get discipline for it. Mm -hmm. And I believe the tubs are part of that work measurement system. So basically, if you're willing to be harassed at work, then you, you're protecting yourself from being fired for being a slow sorter. <laughs> right. <laughs> I would love to say that, that that's such a foreign concept that I can't imagine what that was like, but we all know that there are still issues with that. Especially in training, they really hang it over your head. If you're one, you know, they give you like those thousand letters or whatever, and if you, the time oh, and runs the, out and you're one off, it's yeah. like too bad. But uh, they really hang that over your head. But at the time, the, the wage was $4,380 a year, which I put into the handy-dandy inflation calculator. It uh, comes out to $35,500 in today's money. So not a good wage. What they were asking for was $660 a year increase, which would put them up to $40,800 in today's money. Right. So 
considering how low they started, I don't think that's unrealistic. Like it's a 15% raise, but considering but, where they started, yeah. Yeah, they're starting at below below social assistance or welfare, so asking for 15% over that, it doesn't seem unreasonable. And at the same same year, Parliament gave themselves an $8,000 a year <laughs> right, raise. Right, so, so, so like all, more than double, or almost, almost double, double yeah. what, what they were making total. Yeah, so it's pretty ridiculous not to be giving that relatively small amount. Okay, so an offer that wasn't accepted by the union was uh, to take a, a $300 to $360 a year raise, and uh, the union didn't didn't find that was adequate, so uh, they held out until they got more. It eventually was $550 a year? $550, yeah, was the final um, taking, but there was a lot to get there. Oh, yeah. uh, like I say, the government and even her was threatening to fire all of us. Even our own union leadership was threatening to fire us. Right. Um, we sent a delegation to Ottawa at one point to negotiate. And while our leadership was there, um, the strike leadership, not the official leadership, but the people right. they called. Yeah. Uh, Willie Gould was one of the big ones in Montreal. Uh, he was there. And... They basically put out a press release saying that he had signed an agreement with the government to basically break morale of the strikers and hopefully they go back to work. So I guess oh, he returned that was the, to... That was the false um, communication that, that came through? That was that one of the about? false communications. Yeah. yeah, so he returned back to, to Montreal. And uh, so, yeah, but, he had to go out and say, no, I did not sign this. But that's another thing that came out of this strike is that the membership itself would get to vote on whether they remain on strike, go on strike, whether they accept offers, right? Right. Because before it was just these these union leaders who would make those decisions, and uh, this this strike kind of demonstrated to everyone that that the the grassroots people on the floor need to be the ones who are voting on those decisions. Right. And we should say this wasn't just Vancouver, Montreal. They're the ones that coordinated the start of it. They walked out at the same time. Right. But uh, I think 80 other cities went out the next day and then pretty much the whole country went out after that. And the entire thing only lasted 10 days. But, yeah. you know, the post office, as it is today, is a service that is essential. And uh, they really put a lot of pressure on the government, which is why they, you know, they try and blame us for any strikes that happen now. Even if they're, <laughs> even if like ten people walk out and has no effect, or if they lock us out first. Oh, know. or like when we do the rotating strikes, where like one city is out at a time, and they're like, "Oh, you're just holding well, up all the mail." Yeah. No, actually, we're not. So they're still playing this public opinion stuff and trying to put it on us, where you know it, it's not always us doing it, but you know the press doesn't really favor us. So yeah, there were thirteen thousand workers out on strike at the time. Our own president which one was it um, our own president our own president of the toronto clerks association actually crossed our picket line himself and went back to work so that shows how forceful our leadership was at the time <laughs> they couldn't even join the rest of us in a strike <laughs> yeah you know and you know this this is 10 days without pay people that are obviously barely scraping by there was people talking about sending their uh, their children into the social systems uh, because they just couldn't afford to maintain their own family. Right. You know? yeah. And they went two weeks without pay. There was no such thing as strike pay, obviously, back then, because there no. was no such thing as a as a strike, as far as the unions were concerned, or the government was concerned. Yeah. So, yeah, these are people really, barely struggling to feed and, you know, be, almost being forced to give up their children, in some cases, in their homes, who 
really risked everything. Took two weeks of no pay to fight this. And it's not like he went into it knowing it was two weeks either. Like they well, didn't yeah, know. it could have lasted months. It could have lasted right? forever. They like, could have lost their jobs. You know, uh, Reagan did this to the air traffic controllers, Ronald Reagan in the U.S. You know, oh, they, they tried to go on strike, and Ronald Reagan did just fire them across the board. You know, and mm. they thought no way the government would shut down air travel, but they did. So the same thing could have happened to the post. This was way before that, but still, the same thing could have happened, and there was no way of knowing. But, you know, what did you have to lose, you know? They did eventually have uh, back-to-work votes. The government offered, I think it was $510 eventually. Uh, there was a arbitrator, um, I don't know if they called him arbitrator at the time, but Judge Johnson, I believe his name was. Um, I don't think it was his offer, but eventually they got up to 510 But they did have an arbitrator in there earlier. Uh, so this $510 offer was voted on, and this is where a false communication was sent out. And oh, saying that they'd accepted the 510. Yeah, so Montreal did not accept it. Telegram went to Vancouver saying they had. So Vancouver's like, well, yeah, the rest of the country's caving, especially Montreal where it started. What chance have we got? So they voted to go back to work. And then that kind of rolled out across the, the country, um, except for Toronto, actually. There was a couple other exceptions, but the main one was Toronto actually voted to stay out regardless. Yeah. So, and after that was done, um, that's when they realized the telegram was fake, but the damage has already been done. But Toronto, Montreal, those are big centers, so they still had a huge effect. Also We'd, serves to demonstrate how we need to communicate, you know? Yeah, well, yeah and that <laughs> Like pushed, how, how the union needs, like all of the systems we have in place to communicate now nationally and regionally and all of that stuff, it kind of makes a lot more sense when you see things like that. It's the same thing the corporation still tries, the... The misinformation, for one thing. Oh, but for sure. The divide and conquer. This is yep. really a blatant example of them pitting one group against the other, you know, which they tried to do. They've always tried to do with the RSMCs versus the letter carriers, which yep. they try to do with the tier two wage system. Right. Uh, and in 1965, it was the part-timers and the full-timers. Still is somewhat. But, uh, yeah, this is where they use the limitations of technology and communication at the time to really divide groups. And they knew that if one of these two, Vancouver or Montreal, fell... It would probably bring down this the, the whole system, the whole strike. Right, because they so, were the starters. Yeah, so luckily Toronto and a few other places, you know, decided they were strong enough to do it on their own. And that did push the offer up to 550. I think we probably could have got more than that, but unfortunately the disruption did hurt. Um, they say that there was a lot of public support at the time, though, for the postal workers. I mean, people want their mail, but... Well, even now, where people rely on the post office a lot less, when we did the save door-to-door -door a few years ago, um, the Conservatives even acknowledged that that's one of the reasons they lost the, the election. Uh, and there's three or four seats they figure they lost just on that issue alone, and it oh, affected them across the board. Because they were talking about privatizing. Yeah, so a lot of people see the post office as less relevant now, but yeah. it still, is a, still is a well-loved service, and really had a major effect on the election. So you can imagine what it would have been like in 65 when it was think, the only major way to communicate. I think some of that emotional attachment to getting oh. a card or a letter in the mail is almost increased because there's less less letter mail volume. Mm -hmm. But if someone actually writes you a mm -hmm. handwritten card these days, it's like that's actually touching <laughs> because you don't get those all the time, you know? Here's just look at my notes just to jump back here. Uh, just to show you how misleading that that uh, telegram was they told vancouver montreal voted to 
go back to work. It was actually unanimous that they stay out. And we're talking thousands of workers here too. Um, so it, they weren't just uh, asking for money. As you said earlier, they were asking for um, uh, improvements to uh, uh, ergonomics and health and safety on the work floor. So well, Benjamin Franklin set up the first quote-unquote modern post office more than 200 years before this. We were recognized as one of the best post offices in the world, but we were still using his system. And rather than updating it and making everything better, they just piled more work and said no overtime, right? Right. Then when they did eventually bring in machines later, coding machines, then they tried to use that to abuse us too. So it's unskilled work and tried to offer the mostly ladies again, less pay to run those machines. This is an ongoing theme, though, with poster workers is that, um, you know, the corporation piles more work onto us and we... Resist some, progress. Yeah, and then we somehow manage to make it work, usually to our own detriment. <laughs> well, they find ways to abuse us regardless. Right. Of. Well, and I mean, no one wants to risk losing their job. So, of course, people just work harder, work faster, skip breaks, whatever it is. But, you know, Letter carriers now, are our own worst enemy. Yeah, now we are entitled to those breaks, and we have more protections. So we should be uh, we should be using using those things that that we burn. Um, one of the things they were asking for was um, stools for the sorters, so that they didn't have to stand on concrete floors for eight plus hours a day. Well, twelve sometimes, yeah. So the aftermath of this was, yeah, we did eventually show that unions had power, and it wasn't just postal workers we were the first public sector workers to go on a major strike and we showed that it could be done so it wasn't long after this that collective bargaining rights were given to all public sector workers uh yeah that's in 1967 the federal government passed the public service staff relations act that allowed federal sector workers including us to choose either compulsory arbitration or conciliation with the right to strike Right, so a lot of what workers have today is directly because of this strike. And, mm-hmm. you know, part-timers are brought into the union shortly after that. Yep, also 1967. Uh, yeah, and again, this is what created CUPW because the two working groups merged at that point. Right, and it made it harder for management to, to do that, pitting us against each other. Well, if we give this to the part-timers, then it's taking something away from the full-timers. And it's hard to, a lot of people don't realize in other unions, I do work with other unions and whatnot, uh, a lot of people don't know the specifics of what CUPW did, but they know that they owe a lot to CUPW for things like this. And yep. the very one of the first union functions I went to uh, after starting with the post office was with the Canadian Labor Congress. And during the introductions, the uh, facilitators are actually stopped to thank uh, us for being there and what CUPW specifically did for the whole labor movement and how the you know this thing wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for us in '65. It is, it is nice to go to things like that where, where there's other unions and they, they just they have this this respect for postal workers. And I like not having been here in 1965. I feel like I didn't earn yeah. it, but you know, it's nice. Like we talked about earlier podcast, uh, you know, a lot of times since this, it's been strike, get legislated back. Yeah. But, you know, we take the brunt of it. We take the abuse of it sometimes. And I think we've earned a lot of respect from the labor movements in general. And... Postal workers earned a lot of respect for themselves at this time. Um, there's a movie that we based most of this on uh, called Memory and Muscle that CUPW put out a few years ago. I think it was 89 they actually made it. I'm not sure. Um, and we have copies of that at the local so. office. I don't know if other offices have it, but we were given permission to duplicate this for or uh, copy it for our members. 
So if you need a copy or want to see it, just uh, fire us an email at overburdenedpod at gmail.com and I will make sure you get a copy to look at. But it, uh, it's, it's really short. It's like a 45-minute movie. 45 minutes. And like I say, most of our research came from that. There's that some, good, some good interviews with the people who were there, though. And the... Yeah, and they talk about how, how it gave the job respect and self-respect for the workers there. Right. Because, like I say, guys were going there making less money than, than people on welfare and women were going there to, you know, make pennies and be abused. And this gave yeah. you the right to stand up for yourself and gave you the confidence to do that. Well, and, and it inevitably led to later um, actions by by our union to, like when they won um, maternity, leave. maternity leave in, was that 1981? Okay. Health and safety started to take a focus around this point too, because one of the major things, or one of the other major factors that pushed us into this strike was like I say they kept pushing more and more work on us and people were literally dying on the floor they were there passing out having heart attacks strokes yeah. heart attacks and just yeah faint, fainting on the floor yeah and the government just well there were no breaks right yeah and the government <laughs> didn't care you know because the mail has to move the mail is so important well if it's so important pay us you know right. you know it's important enough that it has to get done but not important enough to, not important enough to invest in the people doing the work and this, like as we said earlier, all the knowledge that those people had in order to sort stuff to the right place, like I don't know if I could do that today. You know, like that's a lot to remember. Um, so if you're not happy with your uh, with your current uh, work conditions, we don't advocate having a wildcat strike, uh, but we we do advocate using your union and the uh, and the strength that they've that they've built up over. The, the last few decades to uh, try to improve things for yourself and for all of the other postal workers that you know. That's it. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.